Friends, it's hard to believe it, but one of the most famous and most beloved Christmas poems is actually surrounded by conflict and consternation. "'Twas the Night Before Christmas" is a sentimental poem that all of us have been hearing at Christmas time for as long as we can remember. But while all of us could surely unite our voices and recite those famous opening lines, there's actually a great disunity about who was the author of this special poem. One author that I read this week described the conflict this way. The controversy surrounding Twas the Night Before Christmas has to do with the piece's author. When the poem was first published by the New York newspaper, the Troy Sentinel, back on December 23, 1823, it was published anonymously. And so no one knew who the author was. The author's identity remained a mystery for 13 years until a professor and poet named Clement Clark Moore came forward and claimed the piece as his own. A story emerged that a housekeeper had, without Mr. Moore's knowledge, sent the piece into the newspaper that he had written for his children. Well, it seemed that the credit had seemingly been given where the credit was due. Twas the Night Before Christmas was actually included in an 1844 anthology of Mr. Moore's literary works. But there were a few details that cast a little bit of doubt over the truth of Mr. Moore's story. For one thing, this poem, with its obvious meter and its rhyme, was unlike any other poem that Mr. Moore had ever written. And for another thing, there were many references made throughout the poem to Dutch culture. And Mr. Moore had no Dutch culture to speak of. But one man who did have Dutch culture was a man named Henry Livingston, Jr. He was another poet who eventually came forward to claim the authorship of Twas the Night Before Christmas. His Dutch heritage showed through very clearly. For instance, the original names of two of Santa's reindeer in the poem, Dunder and Blixen, are actually the Dutch words for thunder and lightning. In addition, Mr. Livingston had an extra bit of proof to accompany his story. The four Livingston children and a girl who was their neighbor can recall hearing Mr. Livingston recite Twas the Night Before Christmas to them as children nearly 15 years before it was ever published in the newspaper. They heard it as early as 1807. They even said they had evidence, a dated, handwritten copy of that original poem with all the revisions and the scratch marks throughout. Unfortunately, the house that contained this written gem burned to the ground, taking the Livingston's family proof with it. Friends, there is so much disagreement about who was the author of this original poem, but all of us can certainly agree on the warm sentiment that starts to fill your heart when you hear those famous and wonderful lines. "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, 
not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. Family, here on Sunday mornings, we're in a special sermon series together that I've entitled Christmas Dreams. We are looking at five of those supernatural dreams that, that God revealed to certain characters who were associated with Jesus' birth. But rather than visions of sugar plums, the visions that God put into people's heads in Matthew 1 and 2 were actually special instructions that in almost every case were given for the express purpose of protecting the baby Jesus and his parents, but especially to protect the infant Jesus who was so helpless and so vulnerable. Well, friends, we're coming today to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And today, family, we're going to look at the second supernatural dream that is given to us during Jesus' nativity. But family, shockingly, this dream was not designated for Joseph. Rather, we'll see today, the second dream was designated for the Gentile wise men who came to worship Jesus from afar. So family, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Matthew 2 here in this message that I've entitled, A Conflict of Kings. Now, as we come to our text here this morning, friends, the opening section of Matthew chapter 2 is quite fascinating for the fact that it says almost nothing about Jesus or Joseph or Mary. Instead, Matthew shifts the narrative slightly to three different audiences who became aware of Jesus' arrival and how they responded to Jesus' arrival. Family, as we study Matthew here in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, what were some of the unique responses to Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem's manger? How did a second supernatural dream weave its way into this drama? And what valuable insights can you and I take away from this conflict of kings for our lives in the here and now? Well, family, let's read now our text, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll take some time to focus in on these three unique responses to Jesus' arrival. So look, look with me, if you would, in God's Word. Matthew 2, let's read verses 1 through 12. You please follow along. Scripture says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also." 
When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Christians, we want to dig into this text now together, and we want to put our focus this morning, friends, on three unique responses to Jesus' arrival. Three unique responses to Jesus' arrival. Here's the first one. Number one, the Magi's passionate curiosity. Number one, we'll see this in the text, the Magi's passionate curiosity. Now, Christian friends, did you know this? Did you know that one of the most famous Christmas carols of all time was written in nearby Williamsport, Pennsylvania? It's true. In the year 1857, John H. Hopkins Jr. was serving as the clergyman at the Christ Episcopal Church in Williamsport when he wrote both the music and the lyrics for a Christmas hymn that has gone on to become one of the most popular of all time. Surely one of the most famous Christmas songs ever to come out of the United States. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. But family, while that song has certainly become a Christmas classic, It has done so despite the fact that the main characters in the song, we three kings, were not kings at all. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible describes them as wise men from the east who came to Jerusalem. Family, the original word there for wise men is the word magi. A magi was not a king. A magi was not a royal ruler at all, but in the ancient world, a magi was someone who was described as an expert in the stars. By the time of the first century, by the time Jesus was born, the term magi was a descriptive term describing men in the eastern world who were interested in astrology and dreams and magic and the future. People have generally assumed that there were three wise men because of the three gifts that were presented. But in reality, there could have been three or four or seven or ten or fifteen. We just don't know, and the Scripture doesn't say. But what we can say with certainty, friends, is that these wise men were from the east. They were probably from the region of Babylon or Persia which, as you know, was a region of the world that the children of Israel had been carried off to during the times of the captivity of the Old Testament. You might remember that the Israelite people spent about 70 years in this part of the world. Mighty prophets like Daniel rose to prominence as communicators of God's uh, revelations during that captivity. So you have the people of God, 
who were a part of this region in the east for about 70 years. You have men like Daniel who were faithfully reading and proclaiming and studying and, and disseminating the, the ancient Hebrew scriptures. So it's not surprising that these intelligent men in the east would have been exposed to the Old Testament scriptures that talked about so many messianic prophecies. They certainly would have been exposed to that famous messianic verse. It's in your notes from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Most Bible scholars think this is the verse that got them thinking about a star in the heavens. Numbers 24, verse 17 says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So family, what did these wise men, what did these star-studying magi, what did they see in the sky that so spiked their curiosity and set them off on this very long and surely expensive journey? Was it really a star, as verse 2 describes it? Well, some scholars have suggested that what they saw was an aligning of the planets, Jupiter and Saturn, which was visible in the constellation Pisces. Other scientists and other experts say what they might have seen was a supernova or an exploding star which typically emits an unusual light for a number of weeks or even months. Other experts say they may have actually seen a comet. Now, if you do the calculations, as some people have done, Halley's Comet... Halley's Comet actually did pass by the Earth in 12 B.C. But family, that's about eight years too early for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now personally, family, I tend to side with those Bible scholars who say that this guiding light was not natural at all, but supernatural. Like the supernatural Shekinah glory that led and guided the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. Now, whatever your preferred explanation of the star might be, Scripture says that upon discovering it, the wise men were so convinced of its messianic significance that they took this long, tedious journey from where they were in the east, and they made a long journey going west to come all the way to Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Well, they came to Jerusalem, friends, because, as even the news has reminded us so recently, Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. And so they came looking for a king. And where else would you go looking for a king but in a capital city? Well, they make this brief visit with Herod the Great. We read that. The star then leads them southward which is amazing in and of itself because stars do not normally move north and south in the sky. We normally watch stars move east and west, but this star moved south towards Bethlehem. And they come finally to the child Jesus. Did you notice he was not a baby by this time, but probably a toddler between one and two years old. The wise men were not there the same night as the shepherds, so maybe you need to get your nativity scenes right. That's another sermon for another day. But Scripture says that the wise men came into the house and they came to see, not a baby, but by this time a toddler, the toddler Jesus, and they fell down in humble reverence and they worshipped Him. And they gave Him these terribly expensive gifts, gold 
frankincense, and myrrh. Here were Gentiles from a foreign land, but Scripture says they worshipped because they understood the messianic significance. They knew that this was Israel's promised Messiah. Well, Christian friends, what valuable insights do you and I take away from these traveling magi? What can we learn? Well, friends, as we see the magi, as we see their deep study of the scriptures, as we see the seriousness by which they took the star, do we see them embarking on this very important journey? Well, it's clear they had a proper understanding of Jesus' true identity. Friends, what a powerful challenge that is for you and I still today. Friend, do you truly understand who Jesus is? Do you realize, dear friends, that He is the Son of God? He's the one sent down from heaven to be our Savior. Have you genuinely come to grips with Jesus' real identity? Friend, if so, if so then just like these magi, you ought to be affected by it. The identity of Jesus ought to stir you. It should move you. It ought to bring a passionate response out of you, a response of humility, a response of reverence, a response of acceptance. The Bible teaches us that we are to accept, we are to believe, we are to receive Jesus Look in your notes, I gave you Acts 16.31, which says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Friend, let me ask you today, have you ever had that response? Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, the one who can redeem your soul from your sins and bring you back to God? Well, friend, if not, I pray that this Christmas, I pray this will be the Christmas when you bow the knee of your life, that you bow the knee of your heart and invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and to be your Savior. Now, family, let's keep moving, okay? Let's step through this remarkable narrative. We're going to see that the Magi were so passionate to meet this promised king, but now we're going to see some others who were far less inclined. Here's number two, the religious leader's pathetic dismissal. Number two, the religious leader's pathetic dismissal. Now, friends, here in a couple minutes, we're going to come back. We're going to circle back around and talk about Herod the Great, why he was so troubled, why he was so stirred up. But before we focus too much on King Herod, let's take some time here, family, to think carefully about the specific people that Herod summoned into his presence. Did you notice their family in verse 4? Matthew records that upon hearing the news about this baby boy who was born king of the Jews, did you notice Herod summons the chief priests and the scribes? Now, who are these men? Who are these dudes anyway? Well, they were the religious elites of the day. They were the hierarchy of Jewish leaders who were in charge of all the religious life of the nation of Israel. So when Herod got the breaking news about a Jewish king, he did a lot like President Donald Trump. He went looking for the best people, the top people, the best people, only the best, believe me, 
Only the best. The best. He went to find the best people to explain what was happening with this so-called king. Verse 5, the most important religious elites come together before Herod, and they tell Herod what had been so famously written by the prophet Micah. In Micah 5, verse 2, that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Now listen, Christians, this wasn't something that these Jewish elites, these religious leaders, they didn't have to go on a long hunt to know this information. They didn't have to go digging through a bunch of Hebrew scrolls to find out this fact. This wasn't some obscure mystery. Anyone who had ever been to Hebrew grammar school for more than five minutes knew the Scriptures teaching that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in the tribe of Judah. But friends, this is the most important thing you can't miss. Christians, here is the most truly shocking thing, so don't miss it. Here were religious experts who had the precise intellectual knowledge that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They were the top people, the best people. They knew the truth, yet they did not possess enough believing faith to go and investigate it. That is truly shocking. Look in your notes. Dr. Tom Constable, who was a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, wrote this. Quote, it is remarkable that the chief priests and scribes apparently made no effort to check out Jesus' birth as the Magi did. Another Bible scholar, Richard Glover, made this insight. Quote, it is strange how much the scribes knew and what little use they made of it. Christian friend, use your imagination with me for just a second. How might you respond if one of your co-workers leaned across the table while you two were hanging out drinking a coffee at McDonald's and your friend or your co-worker said to you, hey, do you know where I can get a spare key made for a 2018 Chevy Corvette? Now, if you heard that, friend, wouldn't you immediately sit up in your seat and say, hold on a second, did you, did you just say Chevy Corvette? Why do you need a spare key to a Chevy Corvette? Did you buy a Corvette? Is it here? Is it in the parking lot? Where is it? Can I see it? Can I drive it? Family, there's no doubt if your good friend got a Corvette, you'd want to see it. Yet here in this text, friends, Matthew records for us, these religious leaders, they gave the right answer to Herod on the birthplace of Messiah, yet they made no effort to get up and go with the Magi down to Bethlehem. It was only six miles. Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem. Friends, that is simply unbelievable. Here they knew the truth. They had accepted the Bible's teaching as true of where Messiah would be born. They had accepted that truth. It was reliably in their brains, and yet that truth had never penetrated their hearts. 
Because if it had, they would have walked with the Magi down to Bethlehem. Friends, there's a powerful lesson in that for us. It's a powerful lesson for us about how we receive, how we respond to God's truth. You know, as faithful Christians who are regularly reading our Bibles and attending weekly worship services, we are constantly being exposed to God's truth. We're constantly being exposed to sound doctrine and good teaching. But the sad reality today is that far too many Christians are just stacking up that spiritual and biblical information that they encounter as if they were books in the library. Friends, think about it. What does a typical librarian do when the big shipment of books comes in? Oh, they go through the books. They interact with them. They sort them, they sticker them, and they stack them. But rarely, if ever, do those books ever truly penetrate the heart of the librarian. Listen to me, Christian friend. If you are not wise to it, that is precisely what can happen to you. You can spend your whole earthly life being a Christian with a head full of truth. A head full of truth, yet a heart that has never truly been impacted by that truth. Christian, you can sadly end up being that person who knows all about Jesus, but never truly knowing Jesus. Christian, let me ask you this morning, this nativity story that you know so well, how has it touched your heart? How has this truth about Jesus caused you to pray more? How has it impacted the way you worship more? Does it make you be thankful more? Does it make you love Jesus more? Does it make you honor God more? Family, let me ask you this morning, which person do you resemble more? Which person are you, the passionate magi? Are you the person who is on the hunt to be with Jesus, to meet Jesus, to know Jesus, to relate to Jesus, to have fellowship with Jesus, to give of your best to Jesus? Or are you the apathetic scribe? Are you the person with all the right facts, but a cold heart, lacking faith, lacking action? Dear friends, search your heart this Christmas. See where you are on this issue of head versus heart. See where you need to grow. See where you need to change. See where you need to begin to take action on all this truth that you've been learning. Friends, ask Jesus to help you be a doer out of your heart. Now, family, we're in this text today. We're looking at the different ways that people responded to the arrival of Jesus, right? The Magi were full of this passionate curiosity, and you had the religious elites with their pathetic dismissal. But now let's come back to the leader of the land. Here's number three. We're going to talk about number three, King Herod's paranoid fear. King Herod's paranoid fear. Now, Christians, in order for us to really understand King Herod's reaction to the arrival of Jesus, we have to take a moment here quickly just to understand a little bit about the kind of man that Herod the Great was. 
History records that Herod was born into a politically influential family. It was very similar to our modern-day Kennedy family or the Clinton family. This was a man who was destined for a life of political power, a life of hardball, power brokering, and undermining his political opponents. History tells us when Rome appointed Herod the ruler over Palestine in 37 B.C., they tell us that Herod ruled with brute force. Herod was paranoid that he would be overthrown like his father was. His father was poisoned by a political opponent. Herod was so obsessed with keeping his power, history says he married nine different women. He married nine different times, each time to try and strengthen his political ties, to strengthen his position, and to keep his power. Not only that, but Herod commissioned the building of, of a dozen emergency fortresses out across the countryside. He used tens of thousands of slaves to build these immense fortresses. And one of these fortresses is called Masada. It is a truly amazing site. I visited there back in 2007. It sits 450 meters high above the flat ground. Many of you have been to Pittsburgh, and to go up the mountain there in Pittsburgh, you've got to ride that special trolley car. That's what you have to ride in order to get up to the top of Masada. It is an amazing fortress, and it was built by this paranoid king who was worried that if a coup happened, he could escape, and he could keep his power by residing in one of these fortresses. Well, family, by the time that Jesus was born, Herod was fast becoming an old man. But his declining health only added to his paranoia. So fearful was Herod of losing his power to some of his wives or his sons that in his will uh, that outlined his successor, he had it changed seven different times. But that's not all. Suspecting even his own family of treason, history says that Herod ordered the death of his favorite wife, whose name was Miriam, as well as her two brothers. And if that isn't enough to shock you about the kind of man Herod was, historians say that Herod even gave an order from his deathbed that his son Antipater be executed. Family, this man Herod was nothing more than a paranoid mafia boss. That's who he was. And when you get that straight in your mind, you'll start to understand why Herod was so, as Matthew says, troubled so troubled to hear of this new king of the Jews. Hearing about this child king, the hair on Herod's neck surely must have stood on end, stirring up again all those fears of anxiety and insecurity. So what happened? Well, look what happens in verses 7 and 8. Herod simply does what all power brokers do when they're on the verge of potentially losing power. They manipulate the situation in their favor. And you see there are those ulterior motives. Herod commissions the wise men to go find the child and then return with the location of that child. Oh, so Herod says, so he can go worship too. But we know the truth, don't we, family? Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. His only intention is to learn the location 
of this child, sink, child king so that his murder squad can eliminate his rival. It made no difference to Herod that this king of the Jews was just a child. All Herod cared about was eliminating the rival. And if it had to take a sharp sword sticking into a two-year-old sternum, so be it. He'd kill a hundred boys in Bethlehem if that's what it took to keep his political power. And sadly, family, sadly, Scripture says that's exactly what he would ultimately do in his attempt to kill Jesus. Family, here's a third response to Jesus. A third part, a third response. On the part of the Magi, we saw worship, we saw awe. On the part of the Jewish leaders, there was apathy. Here's a third unique response on the part of Herod. It's fear and it's antagonism. Antagonism. You know, maybe there are some of you here today who are dealing with some real antagonism toward Jesus toward God, toward Christianity in general. Your antagonism and your anger isn't as, as brash, it isn't as violent as Herod's was, but it's still just as real. The antagonism, the anger that you feel against God or Jesus or these other Christians, here it is at Christmas time, instead of being filled with joy or happiness, you're filled with a lot of anxiety, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. You're angry at God. You're ticked off for how your life turned out. It didn't go the way you wanted it to, and so you're mad. You're angry with God about the job you have. You're antagonistic toward God that your marriage didn't go the way you wanted, that it failed. Or you're antagonistic at God that your friend or your family member has cancer. So here you are even this morning. You're sitting down, but on the inside you're shaking your fist at God. Listen, friend, let Herod the Great be an example to you that going head-to-head -head against God is a losing proposition. God is, by nature, a loving God. He's a caring God. He's benevolent, the Bible says. He's gracious. He's not a cosmic ogre. He's not a vengeful tyrant. God isn't in the business of making you miserable for his own sick pleasure. No, the Bible says God loves you. That's why Jesus came, so that sinners like you and me could have forgiveness and have the gift of eternal life. But listen, standing toe-to-toe -to -toe against God and contending with God, that's not the way to go, friend. So I pray this Christmas season you'll humble your heart. I pray that God will draw you to Himself through His love and through His kindness, that God will show you what a gracious God He is, what a kind God He's been to you all these years. Scripture says that God sent His Son Jesus not to condemn you, but to save you. So friend, acknowledge the anger. Acknowledge that antagonism that you've been carrying around and let go of it. Let go of your resentment. Let go of it all. Ask God to open your heart to His love and to His grace. Ask God to open your heart so that you can experience this very same love that God demonstrated when He sent his son to this world. Well, Christians, we're getting to the end of the section here. Look with me at verse 12. After the personal visit with the child Jesus, Scripture says God reaches out to these magi in a supernatural way. He reaches out to them with a supernatural dream, warning them 
not to return to Herod. Well, we understand why. Not to return to Herod, but to depart to their home country with a different route. Family, here's now the second dream, the second dream in the nativity narratives. And isn't this fascinating? This dream, the second dream, isn't received by Joseph, who was Jewish. Rather, this second dream is revealed to Gentiles, to Magi, who were coming from this far country to worship the Christ. Oh, friends, what an amazing display this is of amazing grace. Not only does God use the supernatural dreams to protect Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, here in this case, in the second dream, God uses a dream to protect even these Gentile foreigners who are seeking and worshiping Jesus with their gifts. Friends, let that sink in today. Let that sink in. Who were some of the very first people to worship Jesus? It was Gentiles. It was Gentiles. Gentile wise men from a foreign land. So as we march ever closer to Christmas Day, dear friends, let's be encouraged. Let's be reminded today that the message of Jesus and the message of salvation that comes through Jesus isn't only for Jewish people. Scripture says it is for all people. It is for even Gentile people. For all people who would come and bow the knee to King Jesus. Well, believers, as we bring this message to a close, my earnest desire today is to get you thinking about where you fit. Where do you fit in these three different responses to the arrival of the Lord Jesus you know, family, so often we read this famous passage in Matthew, and we almost always give our entire focus to the three wise men and the three gifts that they presented. But listen, they weren't the only ones presented in this section. Yes, along with the awe of the wise men, Matthew also writes about the antagonism of King Herod, as well as the apathy of the religious elites. So friend, I ask you this morning, what will be your response to Jesus Christ? Will you pursue Him? Will you pursue Jesus with a passionate, heartfelt desire? Or will you remain antagonistic toward Him, contending against Him with an angry spirit? Or will you be like so many this holiday season? Will you be apathetic? toward Jesus, giving Jesus just a little lip service to his name, a little lip service to his birth, but without ever taking even one step in his direction. Family, three unique people groups are here in this text. Three unique people groups are here in this audience, too. Three unique responses to Jesus Christ. Dear friends, since the year it was published in 1823, a shroud of mystery has rested over that famous poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." And who knows if we will ever know who truly authored that poem. Was it Clement Clark Moore or was it Henry Livingston, Jr.? 
Dear friend, as you move through this Christmas season, let there be no mystery about where you stand in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This preaching for a change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.